Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Our Torah portion, the last Torah portion in the book of Genesis says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Genesis 49.1 The David Stern version from the Complete Jewish Bible recognizes that the Hebrew term translated as days to come is more specific. Reading it in the David Stern version, the passage says, Gather yourselves together and I will tell you what will happen to you in the Acherit Hayamim. Literally, the latter days. And it's not a reference to the Mormons. Instead, it's a term, acharit hayamim, a term that gets used frequently in Jewish eschatology to describe the end of days, the coming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord, and the final redemption. The sage is puzzled over this. First, Yaakov says, I will tell you what will happen to you in the acharit hayamim. But then he goes on to distribute a series of blessings over the twelve tribes. The blessings are indeed prophetic, speaking about what is to happen to each tribe in days to come, but they do not reveal much about the Acharit Hayamim, the end of days. The sages were puzzled by this. If Yaakov intended to reveal what was going to happen in the end of days, he should have led off with a discussion about the exile, the ingathering, the war of Gog and Magog, the coming of the Messiah the defeat of the nations, the resurrection of the dead, the rebuilding of the temple, the kingdom, the final judgment, the world to come. Instead, he goes on to talk about other matters in the future of the tribes and their various allotments in the land of Israel. By comparison with the epic end-of-days content that he intended to reveal, the ensuing blessings seem cryptic and almost trivial at points. The sages explained it like this. Yaakov was about to reveal the end of days, as he said. But as soon as he was about to begin the explanation and the revelation, the Shekhinah, the dwelling presence of God, withdrew from him and he lost the power of prophecy. So he was no longer able to tell them what was going to happen to them in the end of days. And the Midrash brings a parable to illustrate the situation. The king's chief servant was on his deathbed. He gathered his sons around him and he said, Now that I'm about to die, I might as well tell you all the secrets of the king and his kingdom. As his sons drew near around their dying father to learn the good stuff, just then the king himself walked into the chamber to pay his respects to his departing servant. And when the dying servant saw the king... He was abashed, and instead of spilling the king's secrets as he had intended to do, he said to his sons, Always be sure to honor and obey the king. Likewise, Yaakov was about to spill the secrets of the end times, about to give his sons the good stuff. But at that moment, he lost his ability to do so, and he said, Baruch shem kavod malchuto Nevertheless, 
His blessings do contain prophetic hints and clues, especially in regard to the blessing over Judah and Joseph. But the upshot of the whole thing is when he says, Hashem, For your salvation, for your Yeshua, I await Hashem. In the same spirit of Yaakov Avinu, today I would like to invite you to gather yourselves together so that I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. But unlike Yaakov Avinu, Jacob our father, I don't have Ruach HaKodesh, neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. And I cannot tell you what is going to befall you in the days to come or in the Acharit Yamim. However, I think I can make a few educated guesses based upon my worries and my anxieties. Now, our master tells us not to worry about tomorrow. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has trouble sufficient for itself on its own. So he tells us that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow. Why shouldn't we worry about tomorrow? Because today is already bad enough. There's already enough bad stuff going on today to worry about without having to worry about tomorrow. But the actual gist of his saying is, we shouldn't worry about tomorrow because we should be fixed rather upon the coming kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff, all these other things that you worry about, these will be taken care of as well. And so that's our real posture as we conclude the year 2023, looking back over the last year and all that has transpired while at the same time looking forward to the coming year 2024, we want to be focused on the promise of redemption and the coming kingdom, the optimism and the hope and the joy that is the messianic era, the coming of the Messiah that is about to break loose upon all of us speedily soon in our lifetimes. Nevertheless, as we stand here at the end of 2023, looking back over everything that's happened, and as we look forward at the things that might happen in 2024, it's sort of an astonishing moment in history. It was already astonishing before October 7. And since that day of infamy, even more so, the world is on fire. It's upside down. And the United States of America has been torn apart. Not without signs and portents. I don't need to remind you of the series of signs and portents that we saw back in 2020, the pandemic year. Such as that great American flag flying over Sheboygan, Wisconsin. The largest American flag in the world, by the way, which was rent into two pieces on June 2, 2020, by a great storm which came at the conclusion of the Minneapolis riots and the lockdowns during the pandemic. It's been three and a half years since then. Last month, in the last month of 2023, I had the opportunity to address a room full of Messianic kids, a lot of them second-generation Messianic kids, some of them third-generation Messianic kids, at the First Fruits of Zion Saudi Advance Winter Event. And I told them that the October 7 massacre and the subsequent world reaction has been a sort of Scooby-Doo moment. For those of you too young to know what I mean by that, I grew up watching a cartoon show called Scooby-Doo, which involves some young sleuths on the case of a mystery involving a monster, which by the end of each show always turned out to be someone in disguise. 
So the show always ended with the unmasking of the villain, and at that moment you got to see who the real bad guy was. And he would always say, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. Similarly, October 7th has unmasked a lot of bad guys and exposed the rot and corruption in our academic institutions, in the United Nations, in our elite media organizations, in the NGOs and charitable work, uh, in UN relief organizations, in social media platforms, namely TikTok, and so forth. It's divided the world into good guys who condemn Hamas, who condemn the slaughter of innocents, who condemn the rape of Israeli women, who condemn violence against the Jewish people, and the bad guys who condone all of that and justify it. The mask has come off, and we see the villains for who they are. I have already spoken about the Gaza war at length. You have my arguments for why this is a necessary and justified conflict. And with God's help, Israel is prevailing in Gaza. But it's not exactly clear how this all ends. What has become clear is that this is not a war with Hamas alone, but rather the people of Gaza are all in on Hamas and the genocide of the Jews, which creates a problem for which there is no easy solution, even if Hamas was to be eliminated tomorrow, which is unlikely, since the leaders of Hamas live in fabulous billionaire luxury sheltered in Arab countries far, far away from the suffering in Gaza. But even if they were all somehow eliminated, what is to be done with the surviving population of Gaza? And what about the West Bank Palestinians, who are similarly sworn to the same cause of the destruction of Israel? The world demands an immediate ceasefire which is typically how Israel's wars end. Israel is the only nation on earth that is never allowed to win a war, but always compelled to stop and allow its enemies to rearm. So far, this war has remained contained. But that's only because the United States is keeping a lid on it. In reality, if not for the United States, Israel would be fighting on five fronts. Gaza, Lebanon, the West Bank, Syria, Iran, and even six fronts if you have to count Yemen. It's the United States that's keeping the lid down on that. But our forces in the Middle East are attacked almost every single day by Syrian and Iranian forces. And we keep turning the other cheek, so to speak, for some reason continuing to coddle Iran. This is happening day by day, in real time. Shipping through the Red Sea is under threat from Yemen because of the Houthis who work for Iran and are attacking ships with assistance from Iran, cargo ships navigating through the Red Sea. And so far, we've done nothing except intercept drones and ICBMs launched from Yemen. This is a real war waiting to happen because October 7 has unmasked these villains, and they are all in on the extermination of the Jewish people. I've heard that it's axiomatic among Muslims, first the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. I don't know if that's really true, but they are clearly at war with the Saturday people, and we are all Saturday people here. Neither is this conflict confined to the Middle East. This time, it's on our doorstep, in our own streets, playing out as ceaseless demonstrations against Israel and the most outrageous propaganda and lies that the world has ever seen. If I believed the things that the average person supporting Gaza is told about the Israelis, 
I would probably be demonstrating with the protesters. This is a symptom of a larger problem. Anti-Semitism, which up until now has been thinly veiled beneath a veneer of anti-Israel sentiment and anti-Zionist politics, has come out into the open and is being cheered on, especially among young people under the age of 30. New polling data released a few weeks ago, a poll called the Harvard-Harris Poll, indicates that 60% of American adults between the ages of 18 to 24 say that the October 7 attack was justified. 67% consider Jews, not Israelis, to be oppressors. 51% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 said that they believed the long-term answer to Isra the Israel-Palestinian conflict is for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Moreover, one in four people in this age group believe that the Holocaust is a myth and another 25% in this age group are uncertain whether or not the Holocaust really happened. This is indicative of the success of our, education in our educational institutions, which have been teaching this revisionist view of Israel and Zionism for several decades now. I've previously and elsewhere explained where this worldview came from and how it became the dominant voice in our schools and academic institutions. It's Marxist anti-Western propaganda created by the KGB and the wicked Nicolae Ceausescu of communist Romania, all in collaboration with Yasser Arafat, part of a much larger program to destabilize Western democracies from the inside, a program which has actually outlived the USSR that originally created it. But the massive anti-Israel sentiment among young people is also symptomatic of the complete breakdown of objective standards of truth. Objective standards of truth evaporated from the public when the whole nation lost its mind after the last two presidential elections. That abandonment of objective standards of truth has been fueled on by a media that, rather than attempting to report objectively, recognizes the dollar value of slanting news to one side or the other and therefore politicizing the media. The abandonment of objective standards of truth has been exacerbated also by your social media feed, which, according to its algorithms, figures out what you believe and what you want to see and what your pre-existing biases are, and then shows you only those things. If you were to judge national opinion based on the content that appears in my Twitter feed, for example, you would think the whole world was Zionist. This means that most people under a certain age get most of their news from an unreliable source that's been custom-tailored to show them only one side of an argument and to hide the other side from them. This abandonment of objectivity and abandonment of truth is also born out of a culture of political correctness where it is simply not permissible to state certain things that are obviously true. Matters of demographics, matters of gender, for example, that a person born male is a male and a person born female is a female, things that are completely obvious but forbidden to, forbidden to utter. By means of these taboos, Progressives have been conditioned to champion real taboos because, one after another, they have been champions of things that 
once were considered by cultural consensus to be outside of acceptability and even morally reprehensible. The end result of consistently teaching our children that it's morally wrong to call something morally wrong, morally wrong, is that they have become adept at inverting morality. So we should not be surprised to find a majority of Americans under a certain age supporting terrorism, justifying brutal rapes and murder, and campaigning on behalf of evil. But here's what we need to realize. Every one of these kids will be voting this year and they're going to be casting their ballots against Israel. Four years ago, half of these kids weren't old enough to vote. In 10 to 15 years, these are the people that will be running our government, teaching in our schools, running our institutions. Another unmasking that's taken place since October 7 is the identity of Gog and Magog. As Rabbi Lichtenstein explains, the numerical value of Gog and Magog is 70, a number that symbolically represents all nations. The prophet Ezekiel says that all nations will make war against Israel. The prophet Zechariah says that all nations will come up against Jerusalem. Since October 7, it's become completely clear that the United Nations, which represents all nations, positions itself against Israel. The United Nations seems to exist primarily for the purpose of condemning the state of Israel and making war against the state of Israel. We already knew that, in that the UN issued more condemnations of Israel than it had against any other nation in history, and in fact, more condemnations of Israel and censures against Israel than it had against all other nations for all the time of its existence, all put together while mostly ignoring real human rights violations that are happening all the time all over the world. But what was new information was the depth of the corruption of the UN, in that the funding pouring into Gaza, more than half of the UN's international relief workers worked in Gaza, 13,000 employees in Gaza, more than the UN relief workers in the rest of the world combined, employees who turn out to be Hamas members collecting the river of money flowing into Gaza, not to mention rivers of money flowing from Arab states, very little of which goes to the people of Gaza, but is instead diverted into the war effort. Likewise, my wife and I used to support World Vision until it was exposed that World Vision workers in Gaza were indeed siphoning money off to Hamas. But this problem is real. All nations stand poised against Israel and the Jewish people. This is not just biblical prophecy. It's happening before our eyes. That's the situation in the Gaza war. But let's talk about something else. Let's talk about artificial intelligence, AI. My colleague Svi Aharon is rightly optimistic about the good things that artificial intelligence is bringing to the world. I use this amazing new technology every single day, and I can say, without any exaggeration, it's the, most significant, it's the most significant technological development since the wheel. It's going to change everything. Now, it's still in its early stages, but eventually, it's going to cure cancer. It's going to solve our problems. The potential for good that AI represents is matched only by its enormous potential for evil, a potential which I guarantee you will be fully exploited. It can be used for total surveillance, 
all the time. State-controlled AI is a terrifying prospect that goes beyond the worst nightmare scenarios that George Orwell could have imagined. But before we slip into that dystopian future, we are going to see a massive economic shift. We are going to see white-collar layoffs on an unprecedented scale. AI, it turns out, is terrible at running a jackhammer or snaking out a sewer line. So, blue-collar jobs are reasonably secure, but AI can do just about any office job you can imagine better than you can. And it can do most creative jobs far more efficiently than artists and creators, without the emotional problems. The layoffs have already started. Google just cut 30,000 jobs. But that's just the tip of an iceberg which has yet to be revealed. We'll see this AI revolution starting to ramp up in 2024. And it's going to create an economic shakeup. Don't worry. Once we combine AI with a system for digital currency, a transition which seems inevitable at this point, things should level out, perhaps through the introduction of a universal basic income, which will make populations into wards of the state. One can easily imagine a situation where all transactions are conducted through a platform like that so that it's not permissible to buy and sell without the mark of the beast or its modern world analog. That's just one possible scenario for how these things might play out. Nobody knows. Anyone who tells you they know how the national or global economy is going to fare in the next few years is lying or delusional. Because we've never been in a situation like this before. Of course, that's not just because of AI, it's also because the world has never been in a situation of glo global economic codependence like it currently is. So when China, our biggest lender, says, it's not a question of if but when we take Taiwan and we would prefer to do it without violence, that has economic ramifications for the entire world, even if it doesn't plunge us into a world war. And that's why China needs Russia to win the Ukraine war, because the conflict that conflict tests the resolve of the West. Speaking of the Russia-Ukraine war, the defunding of Ukraine is guaranteed to be a political platform in the 2024 presidential election because Putin and the Russian propaganda machine have been in control of those platforms and talking points for several years. I predict that you will see an agenda to defund Ukraine, similar to a defund the police campaign, but this defund Ukraine campaign will be attached to a defund Israel campaign on the basis of isolationist rhetoric, which plays exactly into the interests of those two global powers, Russia and China, and the agenda of Gog and Magog. Keeping in mind that 2024 is an election year in this country, we can anticipate all sorts of mayhem as everything I have just described is exacerbated by the elections. But getting back to techno technological innovations, let's talk about some of the recent breakthroughs we heard about in 2023 on the medical front. There's some really exciting new biotechnology that's been introduced. And that's the ability to clone a human being using stem cell technology. It's pretty sci-fi stuff, but the idea is that it's now possible to make a copy of any human being so long as we have a fully intact genome to implant. This means that not only could we create an embryonic copy of you, which should gestate and mature into an identical, albeit younger version of yourself, but we should also be able to do so for people who are already dead. 
Think about that. Now, you might think, why would I want to create a younger version of myself? But the answer is, suppose you need some new organs or something. So there is this idea out there of growing embryos for organ harvesting. Of course, it's controversial and so far still considered by most people to raise ethical questions, but the technology exists. Speaking of ethical questions, Canada has been offering medically assisted death, that is euthanasia, for some time now, but a week ago or so, we learned that they are considering expanding those services to the mentally ill. At the same time, Another front of medical science is charging headlong into transhumanism, the idea of cyborging yourself for interface with artificial intelligence, for life extension, and various other human improvements that might be innovated. Of course, this too raises some ethical questions. This is all a short distance from the personal sexual and gender identity crisis that our culture seems to be hopelessly mired down in, a crisis that began with the removal of traditional boundaries during the sexual revolution, the gender neutralization uh, agenda of feminism, and then the toppling of the taboos around homosexuality. Uh, and you will remember then just a few years ago, it was the argument over the definition of marriage, which then became the argument over the meaning of gender until people have become utterly lost, unable to differentiate any longer between male and female, right and wrong, all in the name of tolerance, a tolerance that severs all social consensus and forms of traditional social reinforcement. This complete loss of moral bearings, which calls good evil and evil good, which can no longer make a distinction between male and female, and actually finds those binary categories repugnant, is the outworking of postmodern atheism, agnosticism, and secularism. So long as the world believed in God and shared sacred text and tradition, we had common ground to exist as a functional society, a moral compass, so to speak, which kept pointing in a more or less northerly direction by a common moral consensus engendered by the biblical worldview. Atheism believed that it was possible to retain the moral consensus without God and without religion. One of my best friends growing up became a relatively famous atheist who wrote extensively on this idea in which he argued for a morality based on the common good rather than a morality based on divine revelation. Likewise, Marxism makes a similar argument, and that is why Marxism always advocates atheism, and every communist country has made atheism its state religion. But I don't think you can say that communism ever has produced a more moral society after the eradication of faith. Nor can you say that the United States has become a more moral country since the sexual revolution and the collapse of a religious worldview. Instead, the culture seems to have entered a death spiral until we have reached the point that truth has been thrown to the ground terrorism and genocide are advocated in our most prestigious universities and institutions, and it's hip to hate Jews. In view of everything I have just told you, I hope you agree with me when I say this is truly a remarkable moment in history and a seemingly appropriate time for the final redemption. 
The future looks frightening. But here's what the Lord says to Israel and to all of us through the prophet Isaiah. But now this is what Adonai says. He who created you, Yaakov. He who formed you, Yisrael. And don't be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I am calling you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the water, I will be with you. When you pass through rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be scorched. The flame will not burn you. For I am Adonai, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Siva for you, because I regard you as valued and honored and because I love you. For you I will give people, nations, in exchange for your life. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who bears my name, whom I created for my glory. I formed him. Yes, I made him. Isaiah 43, 1-7 Our job in the face of this coming storm is to stand fast in our faith and confidence. Like Jacob, who says, For your salvation I do wait, Hashem. I do wait, I do long for your salvation. In order to do that, in order to stand fast to the end, as it says in the Gospels, we need more than just Bible study. We need each other. We need community with shared values, shared tradition, a shared moral and social consensus, and shared boundaries. And within those boundaries, we need to look out for one another, acting with love toward one another, reckoning ourselves among the remnant that remains. It's time to get out of the world. It's no longer possible to keep one foot in the world and one foot in your faith. It never was possible, but now that's more clear than ever. We need to rethink things like education and higher education. We need to rethink social boundaries. I'm not saying that we should shut the world out completely, because we really do need to be a beacon of hope to the world. People are desperate for what we have to offer. There's a whole movement of women right now converting to Islam. I think it's because their souls long for freedom from the pornographic world which we have created. I think they feel filthy. And Islam, with its outrageous modesty standards under the hijab, looks like a solution. It's not. That's a nightmare. But our Master Yeshua has the cleansing, sprinkling pure water, and the purification, the forgiveness of sins, to wash away the filth. And to put us on a path of purity, the straight and narrow path of godliness and dignity that their souls crave. Likewise, we see young men all over the world converting to Islam because the idea of fighting for a cause gives them something to live for. You know, if you don't have something worth dying for, you don't have something worth living for. But our Master Yeshua gives every disciple something worth dying for, a pearl of great price for which a man must be willing to exchange his life, take up his cross, lay down everything. 
Islam is attractive to people, not because it's tolerant, but because it's intolerant. Tolerance without boundaries is complete chaos and complete loss of identity. It's not tolerance that the world needs. It's righteousness. I told the kids, I told those kids at that Messianic conference, Saudi Advance, that they need to start taking their faith seriously. Because even if they don't take their faith seriously, they can be certain that Russia does, that China does, that Marxism does, that Hamas does, that the Muslim world does, that the secular progressive world does. I told them, yes, you will be hated by all nations because of me, because of Yeshua. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is our message to the world. To whom shall we go? Yeshua of Nazareth has the words of eternal life. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And he will give you rest. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul